Big news. Now you can listen to your favorite WOWD Tacoma radio show at your convenience if you can't listen live. We're now archiving recent shows on our website. Just go to TacomaRadio.org and follow either the link to Shows or the link to Schedule and click the recent show you'd like to hear. Of course, we also hope you'll keep listening to us live, but now you can listen to us on demand as well. No matter how and when you listen, we at WOWD Tacoma Radio thank you. 94.3 FM, WOWD LP, Tacoma Park. tuned into WOWD 94.3 FM and this is Interfaith-ish. Every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. My name is Miranda Hovemeyer and I, dear listeners, am filling in for your regular host, Jack Gordon, who will return soon anim to animating our awesome airwaves to explore the emerging ends of existence on an expedition of interreligious, intercultural, intergalactic interlocution. And so without further delay, it's time to dish, so let us get into some interfaith-ish. Listeners, it's been an interfaith-ish filled past week for me. I am just coming off two totally inspiring interfaith adventures. The first was the United Religions Initiative's Regional Assembly for North America. I met with several of my fellow friends in the burgeoning field of interfaith work and spent time getting to know people from many different faith traditions. We ate meals together, sang songs by a campfire, and had many great conversations. The second interfaith adventure I had, which you'll hear about more in a few weeks, was at the Reimagining Interfaith Conference, which happened July 29th through August 1st at George Washington University in Foggy Bottom. I hosted a few panels and interactive sessions on the topic of interfaith organizing in a changing spiritual landscape. And I was lucky enough to be joined by your fellow interfaith astronaut Susan Katzmiller. It was an amazing week, and we spent a lot of time discussing where the interfaith movement is going. Dear listeners, it was exhausting, and I am finally happy to be here with you for my first time hosting Interfaith-ish. In studio with me today is Sophie Hersher. Hello, Sophie. Hi. Sophie Hersher is the Assistant Communications Director at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, which is the social justice wing of the largest denomination of Judaism in North America. Sophie holds a bachelor's degree in comparative religion from the University of Washington, Seattle, as well as a master's degree in religion from the contemporary, in religion in the contemporary world, sorry, from the King's College London. While in London, Sophie's research focused on the intersection of religion and the internet, specifically interfaith dialogue on social media. Thank you for joining us, Sophie. Happy to be here. 
And I'm likewise thrilled to be joined by Reverend Terrence Mayo. Hello, Terrence. Hey, how's it going? Good. Reverend Terrence Mayo works at the intersection of religion, education, and public policy. He currently serves as a professor at the University of the District of Columbia, assistant minister at Metropolitan AME Church, and a member of the DC Poor People's Campaign Coordinating Committee. He also serves as a community leader on various faith-based boards within the DC metropolitan area that serve to enhance the spirit of ecumenical work and the fight for social justice issues, including the DC Interfaith Leadership Summit, which is where Terrence and I met. He is passionate about amplifying the voice of young people within faith spaces and breaking down barriers to intergenerational coalition building. Sophie and Terrence, it is a great pleasure to have you here on Interfaith-ish. So Terrence, we're going to start with you. You identify as African Methodist Episcopal Christian or AME. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Sure, I'll be glad to. So. Um... I actually originally I was uh, raised Baptist, went to college, and became interested in expanding my view. So I became uh, washed in the non-denominational tradition, Pentecostal. Um, and then as I was doing work in social justice here, um, became acclimated with Metropolitan AME Church here. And it was really... Um, having experiences working with Metropolitan and its members and its leaders that I started to really research more and learn more about um, the African Methodist tradition. Um, and so I really got inspired by literally the root of it is in liberation, social justice, um, and really empowering people to make change. Uh, so you look at even the founder of it, who was Richard Allen, literally he said, um, um, that they were worshiping at a Methodist church and they were not allowed to kneel and pray um, with their white counterparts. And so Richard Allen and others decided that um, their worship was uh, necessary and important just as their counterparts. And so they began to found um, the beginning of what is now the AME church. And since then, the church has been, the tradition has been really about lifting up marginalized and oppressed voices. And many of the members and also leaders have been very, very active in local and national politics, um, interfaith work, ecumenical work, um, and really um, making sure voices are lifted up wherever they are in the world. Um, what also really inspired me to join the tradition was specifically Metropolitan and really it being such a welcoming place where I could be totally myself, um, but also work with others that were really excited about making change in the DC metropolitan area. Cool, thank you so much, Terrence. Um, Sophie, you come from the Jewish tradition, so what form of Judaism do you practice? Sure. I identify as a reform Jew. So Judaism, like Christianity, has many forms of observance. We don't have denominations in quite the same way, but there is sort of a spectrum of observance. And reform Judaism is the largest denomination in North America. It is what you would typically experience as sort of mainstream Judaism in the United States and Canada. It is a strain of Judaism that does not adhere strictly to the rules of kashrut, which is uh, the rules that govern what you eat, uh, what is kosher and what is not. Uh, you are not 
forbidden from doing things like working on the Sabbath. It is a, it was an attempt in Western Europe and the United States to find a balance between assimilating to a degree that allowed Jews to live productively in Western civilization um, and preserving aspects of the tradition that um, have governed Judaism for thousands of years. Cool. Thank you for sharing that, you guys. Um, if you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with Reverend Terrence Mayo, an African Methodist Episcopal Assistant Minister, and Sylvie Hersher, who is Jewish and works at the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism. Sophie and Terrence, you both do a lot of work in the social justice sphere. Terrence, you've been working regularly with the DC Poor People's Campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, I'll be glad to. So, um, as many know, so the Poor People's Campaign has been a national movement that um, has been a resurgence of what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. started in the 60s. And so now we're bringing back that uh, movement uh, to really lift up the moral ills that we see in society today. Um, and that's not just talking about our current administration, uh, but also locally what's going on in our cities, our communities, and our states around issues of poverty, around issues of um, inequality, whether that be in education, whether that be mass incarceration, whether that be a housing, whether that be uh, many of the issues that we're dealing with. So um, it's taking um, a very grassroots uh, stand um, to look at how those issues are affecting us locally and then creating a national network um, where groups are coming together to exchange best practices, uh, to uplift each other and keep uh, each other motivated, uh, but also look at what are and help those emerging young voices uh, in the social justice sphere uh, that are now coming up and, and how do we lift those voices and give them opportunity uh, for, for them to be heard, but also for them to lead. And you said a lot about how the AME Church is involved with social justice. Um, can you talk a little bit how your um, AME values tie in with the work you do with the campaign? Definitely. Um, so literally, um, AME, you know, one of the really founding um, strong points of the tradition is about justice and liberation for all people. Um, and it really is the mindset that if anybody is bound or oppressed, then we're all bound and oppressed. And so um, by working through that tradition and uh, the tenets of uh, the belief system, you know, I am encouraged in the work that I do. Um, if you look at even my pastor, uh, William Lamar IV, uh, he was actually one of the six people that was arrested on the steps um, of the Supreme Court uh, a few months ago. And so it's, it's, it's an amazing feeling when you know that you're a part of a tradition that uh, has your back. Um, and allows you really to look out and feel and work through really what God is calling you to do and embrace you in that sense of justice um, and community. Thanks. That's great. And Sophie, you work at the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism in the social justice wing of the largest denomination of Judaism in North America. Can you tell us more about the social justice practices that your work focuses on? Sure, I can I can speak to the organization and I can also speak uh, 
for myself um, that Reform Judaism also, like AME, places a strong, strong emphasis on social justice work. Um, we find our mandate to do that in a variety of places within the uh, Jewish text and tradition. The the first thing that we usually point to is the mandate to do what we call tikkun olam, which means repair of the world. And the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, which is a part of the Union for Reform Judaism, which is the actual institution um, that oversees the various pieces of the reform movement, interprets tikkun olam in two ways. So traditionally, what you saw in the 60s in Reform Judaism is the growth of what we call social action committees in congregations across North America. And that meant there were people, lay leaders in congregations who stepped up to organize the way that their congregation was going to exist as a positive contributor in their local community. So whether or not that was organizing what we call mitzvah days, so mitzvah means good deed uh, in Hebrew, um, where you would get the whole congregation together, go out into the community and clean up the streets or work at a soup kitchen, do something like that. Um, or if you would have these ongoing relationships with local organizations where the congregation could sort of, uh, in a sustained fashion, work to improve their local community. The, the second way of looking at the mandate of tikkun olam is through the lens of social justice. And that's what the Religious Action Center is really focused on right now, which is the idea that it is, it is just as, if not more important, after you go to the soup kitchen and actually interact with your neighbors and do the work hand to hand of, of repairing that small piece of the world, that you then take a look upstream at what systematic causes are leading to the cycles of poverty that require that we continue to have soup kitchens in every community in America. And so the goal of the Religious Action Center is to help evolve the social action model into the social justice model for the reform movement and all of its individual congregations across uh, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Cool. So are there any other social justice areas that either you feel called to work in that I, we didn't bring up? Well, I think for me, I try and, I try and focus on what what I consider my comparative advantage. So where is my voice going to be most helpful? I am a young, what I call upper millennial woman. Um, I was raised in a, what would be identified as a white upper middle class home. Uh, what can I do? Where is my voice useful? And what I have found is that there are a lot of communities in this country where there are pe there's a person who has never met a Jewish person. Mm -hmm. They know that Jewish people exist. They have studied World War II. Maybe their whole narrative around what Judaism is, it surrounds the Holocaust. And to me, that's, that's not an effective way to build a sustainable relationship and a sustainable identity in the American narrative and the North American narrative. So where I, where I, see myself called to social justice is where I can contribute, sometimes merely by being there, sometimes merely by being open, uh, willing to answer questions, willing to ask questions, and specifically on the issues that I am particularly engaged in, which tends to be around religious liberty, religious freedom, and public policy. So giving a Jewish voice and a potential for Jewish partnership on those issues. Thank you. Terrence? That's great, Sophie. 
Um, for me, also kind of a burgeoning area is also the inclusion of uh, LGBTQ rights, um, not only in just life in general, but how that comes in the life of the black church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and <laughs> that interesting history um, that's there and the lack of actual conversation around it. Um, and I would say the second piece has really been lately about, uh, about really focusing on educating um, communities about systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and even some religious leaders about systems. And as Sophie was saying, I think, um, you know, people can get really confined of, oh, well, we have a soup kitchen. Oh, well, we offer free clothes. Oh, so we're doing the work. Um, and so transitioning their perspective um, to feel like, okay, so what would it look like if we didn't need to have soup kitchens? Mm-hmm. And what are the reasons why we have to have soup kitchens. And so going to that next level um, and helping them be okay to ask the hard questions and ask our representatives, ask our leaders, community, faith, um, why are these still problems that we're dealing with? Um, I have a quick question. Uh, Do either of you know of any interfaith efforts that are happening in D.C. this weekend trying to counter the Unite the Right rally? I do. Thanks so much for asking. There are actually several uh, different opportunities for people who are looking to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in a way that builds solidarity and partnership across communities. The one that I know of and that I am uh, sort of tangentially helping to to plan is the, is a event at the Martin Luther King Memorial from 12 to 4 on Sunday. Uh, It is the culmination of a four-day march from New York City to D.C. of interfaith community members and activists who want to show in whatever way they can that this is a moment of solidarity and this is a moment for us to come together and recognize sort of the innate and profound humanity of of the community. So I encourage everyone to to join us at the MLK Memorial at 12 o'clock on Sunday. I will be there. Thank you. Um, This is just a reminder that you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3. We're talking with Sophie Hersher, who is Jewish, and Reverend Terrence Mayo, who is an assistant minister in the African Methodist Episcopal tradition. Terrence, you wrote in your bio that you're passionate about amplifying the voice of young people in faith spaces and breaking down the barriers to intergenerational coalition building. I'm really curious about the work you do with young people. According to recent Pew studies, the millennial generation is less religious than its older counterpart. Why do you think this is, and how do you go about creating space and faith traditions for the voices of our youth today? Ooh, great question, great question. (laughs) Um, So I think I'd begin with, um, so yeah, so there's an interesting, thing that's going on when you look further at the pew information what we see is for um whites that is actually true that is a greater separation from traditional religions and becoming what we now call as nuns or not affiliated um but if you look at people of color those trends are actually 
not the same. And so it's less of a separation. Now, going even deeper in that, what we're seeing in the African-American tradition is um, a challenging of our young generations saying, um, what are we doing other than just having church? And so um, that's, again, kind of one of the things that drew me to AME. Um, and so having a lot of conversations with young people um, that feel like their churches, congregations are not safe places for open dialogue, are not safe places to discuss um, what's actually happened in real life, not safe places for discussions around sexuality, not, you know, and the kind of the goes on and on. And then you have the unfortunate um, surgeons of um, prosperity gospels um, that really focused on um, if you're not prospering through economic means, then you're not doing something right. God doesn't love you. And it really pushes this, uh, this focus more on personal uh, piety than communal healing. And so I think it's, people are understanding that there's this dysfunction kind of going on in congregations that not is not meshing with uh, what we're feeling in our everyday lives. Um, and I think overall, people are searching for more nowadays, now that we have more access to information, to research, even to connections uh, with individuals, not just in our local communities, but the world, um, and having those you know, we want to go after those big questions. Um, and so what I've been doing is just having and creating safe places, um, not just locally, but in other sectors um, of the region where people can just get together, talk about some of the things that they're feeling, um, and also talk about how do we strategize um, as millennials, Zennials, I think they call us now. I don't know. I don't um, know. <laughs> yeah, it's just so many different labels. Uh, and just talking about labels also, right? So you see uh, among young people, like, there's this huge push against labels, which is so fascinating. I'm not in that generation, but I'm on the border. Um, so just even talking about what labels mean, the confinements of it, the justifications of it, and wrapping that all in faith and also in public policy, the conversations are very, very interesting. And then figuring out how can we take this further to go back to our communities um, to make sure our voices are heard. Um, because when we're looking at midterm elections, when we're looking at what's really being done in our communities, now is the time for us to really act and speak up. I believe, um, if I'm, I could be incorrect, but the president is, one of these parties to a lot of the prosperity gospel preachers. And uh, do you know anything about that, who his preachers are? <laughs> so, yes. So just um, <laughs> last week, there was a group of African-American preachers that met with um, the country's president to talk about inner city, quote, unquote, um, issues. Um, and even in that, they were preachers that specifically uh, were rooted in prosperity gospel, were rooted on personal piety, were rooted on um, the church is the four walls and we stay in the four walls. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very interesting to see um, this, this call to preachers that don't do social justice 
to talk about social justice. Right. Um, and even with that, um, you know, there's been a big, <laughs> there's been a big counter voice to say, yeah, those are not our profits. And so when we talk about profits from the tradition of uh, profits being the voice of change, but also liberation of the press, uh, profits being the voice that speak truth to power, profits being the voice that um, when they spoke to King kings in the Bible, they spoke to say, this is wrong, free my people, do what's right, um, and not to go and sit in the form face of a quote-unquote king um, and say, oh, you're great. Oh, you're wonderful. Oh, we love you. We're praying for you. That's not the tradition we come out of. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so because of that, there's been um, a voice of more of the prophetic uh, preachers that are saying, no, that's not actually what we stand for and kind of listing those demands. Thanks for sharing that. That's really interesting. Um, Sophie, your research focuses on the intersection of religion and the internet, um, specifically interfaith dialogue on social media, which I find fascinating. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this work? And do you notice anything in your research about youth and religious traditions and their role today? Sure. My research focused uh, specifically in the United Kingdom because that is where I was living at the time. And what I did was take a look at how interfaith institutions and professions were using social media to do the work of interfaith, whatever that work might be. And what I found was, to me, uh, sort of counterintuitive. And I, I should say I come from a consumer technology background, so I worked at Twitter for four years uh, before I went back into the world of religion. And I had sort of fully drank the Kool-Aid that tells you that social media is the future of of communication. It is the equalizer and the democratizer of communication. And it is, it is how we have these truly uh, equal and anonymized spaces. And that's not what I found in the religious space. What I found was that conversation, true meaningful conversation, is not happening around interfaith on social media in the professional space in the United Kingdom. So there's a lot of qualifiers there because mm -hmm. the, the research had to be uh, realistically narrow. But ultimately what it suggests is that social media is being used to do something that I'm calling interfaith monologue rather than interfaith dialogue. And the idea is that there is still a tremendous amount of cultural value in normalizing interfaith interactions, interfaith ideas, interfaith engagement, interfaith relationships but that social media doesn't tend to provide a safe enough space to have meaningful conversations about things as complex as religious identity, religious advocacy. And I think that that sort of jives with some of what I'm hearing from you, Terrence, and what I have experienced myself in the Jewish community, which is that there are no easy answers and there are no blanket statements when it comes to the, the complex world of what a religion is, isn't, believes, does, or doesn't do. Um, you know, there's the old adage, you know, five Jews, ten opinions. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely correct. I can't speak for the Jewish community. I can speak for myself. Um, and that was really interesting to hear from you, Terrence, that within the AME community or within the community of, of black Christian leaders, there is a variety of opinions on certainly what happened last week, but probably everything. Um, 
And this was very interesting. I, I had an experience recently. I was in, uh, I was in Vilnius, Lithuania on an emerging leadership trip uh, between Jews and Catholics. And we kept trying to have conversations where someone would say from the Catholic side, well, what do Jews believe about X? And on the Jewish side, each of us would giggle and say, well, <laughs> um, I can tell you what I believe, what I was taught by my rabbi, um, but it's too complicated to say the Jews X. And, and social media, because of, it, because of the necessity of brevity, requires that you make pithy, short statements, mm. and often interfaith is not the topic that allows for that. And uh, all of this is just to say, while what I did not see in my research was a tremendous amount of meaningful interfaith dialogue on social media, I still think more than ever that it is an imperative tool for normalizing these type of relationships. And I think, you know, if, if nothing else, we could take a picture here in this studio of the three of us spending the morning together. And for plenty of people in our own circles or spheres of influence, that may be surprising. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, look at those people. They all three have different beliefs and they've chosen to spend a morning together for people who live in insular communities that in and of itself can be impactful in expanding their imagination about what types of relationships are possible. Wow. Thank you. That's fascinating. This is Interfaith-ish, our biweekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Miranda Hovmeyer, sitting in for Jack Gordon, and I'm joined by Sophie Hersher from the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism and Reverend Terrence Mayo, Assistant Minister at Metropolitan AME Church. We've already discussed some of the background of each of our guests in the first half hour. Now for the second, would like to turn over the mics to our guests and give them the floor to ask anything they wanted to know about each other's traditions and beliefs, like things that they may have, may have never asked someone at the tradition in question, never known to ask, or just flat out misunderstood. And so with that, I'll turn it over to my two guests, Sophie and Terrence. Thanks so much. So I'm so excited for this conversation today. I have so many questions to ask. Um, but my first question, um, as a fellow person that's in faith-based organizing and, and activism, do you feel like the, the climate, the community um, of DC um, changes the work for you? Um, and if so, how? That's a great question. I think, I think that DC is, I think there's two ways to think about DC. And one is the most jaded place in the world. And the other is the most hopeful place on earth. And I ascribe to the latter. Um, I have found that DC has made it easier for me to get involved to dive in. I moved here two years ago, and just started showing up at interfaith and, and religious events and found my way into a community of people, which includes yourselves, that that care, do this in their spare time because they care so much. And the fact that so many people in DC are so engaged on public policy issues has made my work, which tends to gear towards the social justice public policy side of religious activism, certainly easier. That being said, 
it definitely creates a blind spot, which is that part of my job and part of my goal for myself and my career is to help all communities in, in the country and in North America and in the world build up their own capacity to have these types of conversations, build these types of intentional communities and do the types of advocacy that's going to improve their quality of life. And DC is such a specific place. The, the conditions that we work in are different than so many other places. And I think it's important to step outside of that when you're thinking about how to, how to build. Um, I mean, you, sh you know, act or act locally, think globally, right? Um, stay focused in your community and how best to make change there, but with an eye towards what is scalable about the work that you're doing. That's sort of what I keep trying to tell myself. Mm. That's great. That's great. And I found it to be so very true. A lot of times people um, kind of ask me, how does that, how would I do this here? And I'm like, mm, I have to think about that a little bit because it's DC so very different, um, but offers the opportunity to really sometimes also think out outside of the box of um, what does this mean, not only locally, but nationally, and how can we kind of blend that together and what we're doing? Yeah, I, I had a mentor I have a mentor. Um, she she was the executive. She is the executive director of the Interfaith Network for the UK, where I worked while I was in grad school doing some research. And I asked her as I was moving back to the United States, you know, what is your what what should I do? How, how should I focus my energy? And she said that in all of her years working in interfaith, the thing that she has learned is that the most impact often that you can make is hyper locally. It's to move somewhere where these types of relationships don't exist or they're not out in the open and help build that intentional community. Because in someone's day-to-day -day life, if they live in a community that doesn't have this type of conversation ongoing, then when, God forbid, something terrible happens, there won't be that possibility for reconciliation in the community, which is required to move forward. So I, I've been trying to keep that in mind while we sort of work nationally. <laughs> um, I actually, I have a question for you. Yes. And this is, this is a question for myself and I'm, I'm hoping for the, the listeners as well, which is that while I try not to speak for all Jews, I'm going to break my own rule just this once and say that I think it's, it's safe to say that Many Jews don't necessarily understand or have the vocabulary to understand what differentiates different denominations of Christianity from each other. And there's sort of this sense to say, oh, well, there are Protestants and there are Catholics. And we know that and we know they're different, but we don't know how. And thus it can be really challenging when you enter interfaith spaces to understand what might, uh, what differences of culture or language or experience might separate someone who's a member of an AME church from someone who's a member of a Southern Baptist. Um, those are sort of extreme, I think, um, examples. But I'm just wondering what your advice might be for someone entering an interfaith space or who's looking to engage in more interfaith dialogue who wants to understand a little bit more what's, what differentiates Christians from each other. Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, the simple answer is it's super complicated. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so super complicated. I mean, there are, it's like division on top of division, on top of division, on top of division, on top of division. Um, and many of the separations, um, 
are because of individual founders or group. Uh, there was a difference in polity. There was a difference in liturgy. Um, or one particular concept became the thrust of an entire denomination. It's so complicated. It gets so complicated. Um, and so, you, you know, even when we talk about the AME tradition, it's, yes, we are Methodists, mm-hmm. right? So we sit really centered in that. But at the same time, um, we respond um, in the illumination that we're also African. Um, and so it's how do we blend that uh, in our music and our liturgy um, and our preaching um, and who we are and exhibiting that. So, you know, you will see the very charismatic service. You will see the dashikis and the African traditional garb. Um, you will see this um, communication and dialogue with our sisters and brothers all throughout the world who are African descendants or African. Um, and then it's still the Episcopal part of us that is really Episcopal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just this wonderful mix of the three that makes it so intriguing and wonderful. Um, and so I attended Howard School of Divinity and one of the best books uh, one of my professors actually gave me was How to Be the Perfect Stranger. And it really kind of broke down um, in quick snapshots of, you know, all the world's major religions and kind of went to background. And I really, for myself, like, took a lot of time to really study that to better understand. Um, And the wonderful thing about doing that and being in the interfaith work is understand that we're more alike than we are different. And so that, for me, is so empowering that, yes, we have... We believe in some different things, but at the end of it, we all have our humanity, right? We all have that. We care about each other. We care about the bodies that we have. We care about Mother Earth. Like, and so even though we may disagree on everything else, uh, you know, we can find ourselves back in that place. It's so interesting that that you say that because I, I so I recently flew down to Dallas uh, to speak at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship annual meeting, um, and that's because I I uh, am a member of the BJC Fellows Program. That's the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And I when I applied to their Fellows Program, they said, you know, are you sure you're at the right place? And I said, yeah, I, I want to understand this. And I was speaking on a panel about advocacy work, what what Baptist communities and, and my role was to sort of say in partnership with Jewish communities can do around religious liberty specifically. And I inadvertently made a joke, which was, you know, they said, you know, you're here, you're Jewish, you know, what brought you here? And I said, I just didn't know that being Baptist was so complicated. And everyone burst into laughter. And I didn't mean it as a joke. But I think that we all we all have a tendency to think that our identities are so much more complicated than everybody else's, right? If I meet another Jewish person, you could have a 45-minute conversation about exactly how you were raised and how that is different or similar to the other person. And that makes total sense to me. But I'm still figuring out how different it must be for Christians and how different it would be for a mainline Methodist to go to an AME service and vice versa. 
And it just feels like so much of the point of interfaith is to give us the language to have these conversations so we can get to the real joint humanity because we get separated by all the things that feel complicated mm-hmm. or different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's really been about <laughs> the more I study religion, the more I'm like, oh, God, we have a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, but remembering... Um, the humanity piece has really been like, I've been stuck there for like the last few months. I mean, like really stuck there. Um, and so it's been so encouraging to have conversations with Jack and Miranda and Cassandra and, you know, the whole kind of crew, um, to reflect. And I think as a country, we're always so on the go. Um, a lot of times because we have to economically, but that's a whole other subject matter. Um, but we're so busy, we don't have time enough to reflect. Um, and that's where I kind of find my piece of um, that humanity piece still comes back up. And I can say, oh, I don't understand. But I can have a conversation with Miranda and like, I know we talked about this five times already, but break it down for me like one more time. Um, but then like you said also, it is... The humanity piece about it is also that we bring ourselves into our religion. And that's what um, changes that religion to make it better and also different. Yeah, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Miranda Hovemeyer, and we've been talking with Sophie Hersher from the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism and Reverend Terrence Mayo, Assistant Minister at Metropolitan AME Church. Thank you so much, both, both of you, for being a part of our show. I really appreciate having you here. That's a wrap for our episode of Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests, Sophie and Terrence, for joining me today. I also want to thank my fellow Interfaith Ishtonauts, my team behind the scene, Jack Gordon, Sue Katzmiller, and Steve Hoffman. And as always, a special shout out to Jeff Philosopher for hooking us up with our theme music. Thank you, dear listeners, for spending your time with us. Let us know if there's any Interfaith-ish you wish to dish by writing an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, August 22nd at 9 a.m. with our next live episode of the illustrious return of our regular host, Jack Gordon. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week. Streaming online also at TacomaRadio.org, and you can go there for a full program schedule. 